In this podcast episode, there are moments that may trigger certain listeners, which includes depictions of traumatic experiences, including loss. We encourage you to listen to this episode with an open heart as the guest guides the listeners to how he pushed through his trauma. I promise you will not regret it. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko, and on today's episode, we have Jesse Cruz. Jesse Cruz is a professional speaker, storytelling and personal development coach, best-selling author, veteran, and youth advocate. He inspires others to overcome their challenges and achieve their goals. Jesse speaks and coaches at events all over the world. His passion is to empower men to heal from loss and motivate people to achieve their true potential through his coaching programs. Jesse empowers his clients to overcome adversity and develop success in their personal and professional lives. He is the author of Live Your Dash, a book written to guide people to freedom by discovering their purpose. His latest best-selling book, Losing Faith, Finding Hope, is a guide to inspire hope and overcome loss through healing. Jesse's passion and ability to connect with his audience is unmatched and have made him a highly sought-out speaker for top organizations, including the Ronald McDonald House. He was honored with the number one dad award from his daughters. He and his wife, Desire, believe in spreading hope, H-O-P-E, by helping other people every day. Jesse is a man of faith and a pleasure to work with. If you are an event planner looking for an inspiring, highly motivated, and passionate speaker for your next event, then Jesse Cruz is the speaker for you. Help me welcome Jesse Cruz. Thank you so much for having me, Hector. No problem, Jesse. Thanks for being on the podcast. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, well, Cohen, based off that introduction there, you know, my passion is writing and speaking and coaching. Those are things that I just love doing because I truly believe so many people are seeking direction. They want to know more about how to uncover their story. And that's been my mission is to help people share their story. You know, I'm a family man, I'm a world traveler, and I just truly enjoy helping people. That's excellent. In the introduction, it says that you are a veteran. Can you go a little bit more into that? Yeah, so back from 2007 to 2011, I was in the United States Army. I was stationed down in Fort Hood, Texas, and I went to Iraq in 2009 for a year. And how was that experience? You know, that experience was tough. You know what I mean? Because being away from everybody I love, family, friends, there's a lot of isolation. So adjusting to that emotionally and mentally was one of the biggest challenges of my entire life. Had you met your wife at that time? So at that time, I was actually married and we actually got a divorce and I came back home. And I actually was a single parent for a little while and met my wife now a few years later. So Iraq had shifted all my relationships completely. Let's go a little bit into what happened in your first marriage. Do you think that your experiences in Iraq led to the end of your first marriage? I would say me being gone for an entire year um, caused us to completely drift apart. So, um, 
not doing what I was supposed to do in a relationship and then being gone for a year uh, was really tough. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and say it's all me being an Iraq's fault. It just maybe revealed some problems that were already existing in that time and space created um, some time for us to think about what we really wanted out of life. And, and that was just for us not being together. It just wasn't working. So um, Iraq, I, I'm not mad about that year. I think it was a blessing in disguise. So I'm thankful for all of it, no matter what. And how was your journey to adjust to life back in the United States? And it was extremely difficult um, because being in Iraq for a year and then coming home, having to start all over again um, without my family there, um, complete readjustment to life. Um, you know, my, my family was living in New York State. I was living in Texas. So it was, it was hard, but... You know, I got out of Iraq a couple, or I'm sorry, I got out of Texas a couple of years later. Um, when my term in the military finished up and I moved back home and started to reconnect with family and friends back in New York. So it all worked out in the end. So when you finished your tour in Iraq, you moved to Texas, but you were still part of the army. You had to stay at Fort Hood. Correct. I was there for another two years. And then after that is when... You moved back to New York to be with your family. Correct. Again, there's that adjustment period, right? When you moved back to New York, you had to find work. Yeah. So when I came back, well, I was already planning my work before I left Texas. You know, so I was talking to people back home if they knew of any places hiring. Um, so I wanted to have something set up when I got back. So I actually was able to secure... Um, employment before my contract in the military was finished. And can you tell us what you transitioned into? So I transitioned to um, a nonprofit organization called the Youth Advocate Programs. And you were able to obtain a salary and all that? Absolutely. So I started out part-time and then worked my way up to full-time. And I've been there ever since. So I've been there over 10 years. Wow, that's great. I'm assuming that Based on what you told me, you met your wife, I guess, when you moved back to New York? Yep. Well, when I moved back, a couple years after I moved back to New York, um, we had met and dated, got engaged, and then got married. Okay. So let's find that seed that was planted in you to move from a youth advocate worker to an author. Where can you pinpoint that moment that maybe changed everything or just planted that small little seed? So what planted the seed was actually going through a crisis in my life. My wife and I were pregnant with our child and she was born prematurely. And so she was literally one pound and highly at risk to die at any moment. So there were moments in the hospital, I spent a lot of time in um, prayer and a lot of time thinking and reflecting what we were going through and so I, there were days where she would literally flatline in front of me and then be brought back to life and then flatline and be brought back to life and that is what we experienced on a regular basis in the hospital with her and then after 42 days of fighting she flatlined for the final time and they couldn't save her and i walked out that hospital room 
complete mess. And there are moments, years later, I still struggle with it. And I decided that this can ruin my life or it can help reshape my life. You know, and you know what? It was very, very close to destroying my life because I got into a depression, a serious PTSD with flashbacks, stress, anxiety, worry was a norm for me. So having those flashbacks and having anxiety, worry, and fear, you know, was the new norm for me because I had a hole in my heart. And trying to learn how to relive life again without a person you love is one of the most difficult things anybody can do. Not having my child with me was devastating. It was a reoccurring nightmare that I just had. And I just learned that, you know what? I don't know why she died. I don't have all the answers. And even if I did, it wouldn't make it better. It wouldn't make me feel better. The fact is that she's gone. She's no longer here. And I still have my wife and my other children here who still love me and need me around. So I need to do my best for them. And I needed to heal. And my only way that I felt like I could heal in those moments was just to just write. So I began writing every day. I would write until I cried. And that writing helped me feel so much better. It was a therapy for me. And because of my daughter, Faith, because of her life of watching her struggle and fight every single day, she didn't ever give up. And I knew I wasn't gonna give up either because of her. And my writing was my way to almost kind of go visit her and just think about my next steps in life. And so because of her, she's the one that helped me become a writer and an author and a speaker and a coach and all that. So um, because of her, her life, I give her the credit. Up to this point in your life, have you been a religious person? So I don't really, and this is just a preference for me. I don't like the word religious, but that's just my preference. But I know what you mean. But for me, um, I don't, and, and I'll, I'll explain why. So for me, I think people who are, you know, claim to be religious, and this is no offense to them, is that they feel that they can do something or be nice enough or kind enough or good enough. And hopefully someday that they might just get led into heaven. Um, and that my approach is just different. You know, it's a relationship. You know, I, I believe in a loving God and a loving father who loves his children, you know? And so I have children of my own. And even if they mess up, even if they do something wrong, I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to forgive them. And it's just a loving relationship. There's nothing my children can do to stop my love. There's nothing they can do to earn more of it. And so for me, that's how I look at my relationship with God. And so before um, what happened with my daughter, I had that relationship with God and that's really what got me through. Like if I didn't have that foundation with my relationship with God, I really saw no purpose in living. So I probably would have took my own life if I didn't have my relationship with God pulling me through. Can you go a little bit more into that? I think the listeners would really like to hear about how how god helped you in the most difficult time of your life yeah so i think a lot of times people try to figure out god but if you could figure god out he wouldn't be god to begin with and so whether you know my daughter died or my daughter lived that doesn't change who god is 
you know, faith in God is it's not circumstantial. It's not, oh, I got what I prayed for. So God loves me or God is there and exists and is real or I didn't get it. So he must not love me or care. And I think, you know, I spent years thinking that's kind of how it worked. But, you know, God was the one pulling me through. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, early on in my faith, I just thought if I put my trust in God, everything's just going to life's going to be perfectly fine. And there's really nothing to worry about. But that's just not how it works. And there is no promises saying that you're going to have an easy life. That's what people think is going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. And I, th I think early on in my relationship with God, I was just expecting he was going to put all the fires out for me, all the challenges, all the pain. He was going to somehow make sure that those things didn't happen to me. So I thought, you know what, having that relationship, I'm just going to not have to deal with the, with the pain and the fires that may happen. But God doesn't always put out the fires but I truly believe he steps into the fire with us. And I felt his presence there with me every single day with her while she was struggling to breathe, while she was having a good day. And while she died in my arms, I still knew he was with me, even though I was still upset and angry at him. So in those moments where your daughter was In those moments that your daughter was, can't ask this question. Third time's the charm, here we go. In those moments that your daughter was flatlining and you felt God's presence, how did that, how do you balance between God is here with me right now and I'm losing and I'm losing and I'm losing a part of my heart. Absolutely. So I think what helped during that time and my wife actually had put a scripture on the wall or very early on in our time in the hospital. And it read Psalm 46, five. And it says that God is within her. She will not fall. He will help her at break of day. And I used to read that verse every single day because it was plastered on the walls in her room. I read it every day. And that was the verse that gave me hope. That was the verse that kept me going. And then on February 16th, at the break of day, she started dying. And I'm looking at her and I'm crying. And I'm looking at that verse, shrugging my shoulders, saying, where are you? not believing in that moment that he was there at all because how can you how can i read this verse on the wall and you're telling me that she's going to be okay and you're going to help her break a day and she's dying in front of me and i think a lot of times when people read scripture they think about what's going to happen on earth i was expecting that he was going to help her by keeping her alive and in reality that verse was meant for what happened after her life ended because at the break of day on February 16th, 2017, she was helped. She was just helped differently than how I saw it. 
she was helped by being healed completely, brought home to heaven. That pain and suffering for her was gone. It's not gone for me because I still miss her every day. But that verse was for her as a reminder to me that he's going to help her at the break of day. And he did. It's just our idea was different. Mine and God's idea were completely different. And, you know, I was mad, sad, frustrated, angry, every other thing. But I just knew even in the worst moment of my entire life that he was still with me because it, when you have that relationship, you just know that you can trust despite how you feel. So at what point did you say, let me start writing? Because I've always, I always teach through my motivational speaking that if something is in your head, it's going to stay in your head and it's going to circle around and around and around. It really doesn't have an exit out of your mind. And I truly believe because it has worked in my life and through your experience, it has worked in yours. What made you think or start to write? Was it somebody that told you to do it? Did you just say, you know what, let me start. Take us through that process. You know what? It's interesting. I think it was a couple of things. I actually wanted to write a book before this happened. So I, ha I had the aspiration to do it. And I think that's the funny thing about trauma and grief and a crisis is that all the things that we deep down already wanted to do puts it to the forefront of our minds. And now we're like, you know what? Now it's time because I always wanted to write a book, but truthfully, if she had never died, I never would have probably wrote one um, because I just realized with that lesson how life is like a vapor. I mean, you're here today, gone tomorrow. Like I really learned that even more. And I think that, you know, having the desire to already write within me um, was great. And then having that experience with my daughter I was like, you know what? I'm not going to continue going on through my life, not utilizing the things I would truly believe I've been gifted with. So that traumatic event is what actually pushed me in that direction. And while I was in the hospital, people actually sent me this little, um, it was a little container that had papers, like small pieces of paper and pencil in it. And so what I would do is, you know, I would just write on it and just, you know, write my thoughts, ideas, and prayers. And I put it in this little box and that helped, that helped me on those tough days when I could organize my thoughts and my feelings. Just writing it down always seemed to help me. And then after she passed away, I waited about two weeks and I said, you know what? Now's the time because if I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I need to commit even when I don't feel like doing it, even when I want to quit, I'm just making a decision from this day forward that I'm going to be a writer. I started writing and I've been doing it ever since. Becoming an author is a desire for many people, but for many people, they have put it off because it takes a lot of work. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be an author, who has this idea for a book, but they have put it on the top shelf and they may take it out, look at it a little bit, but they'll put it right back. 
what advice would you give to people to get get started? And that's a great question, Hector. I think for me, it's it was literally deciding a time and a location to do it. So every single morning, this was just for me. Everybody's different, but for me, I made the decision. I'm getting up before my family gets up every single day. I'm getting a notebook and a pen, and I'm going to write at least one page every day in the morning until I fill up this entire notebook. And that's what I did. So it's like I had to, I wrote it in the same exact place at the same exact time every single day. And it built a routine. It built a habit, which also built a skill, which also built the confidence. So for the person who wants to write a book, find a place in your house or wherever you're at, find a time and just start. That's literally the best advice I can give is to just start and don't give up and keep at it every day until you have enough content to make a book. So let's go ahead and talk about your first book. The first book is titled Live Your Dash. And you would just have to break it down and just realize that the dash that you are talking about is the dash between the year of your birth and the year of your death. And that dash is significant because anytime that you go to a cemetery, not all tombstones have the dash, but we get the significance of that little line. And yeah, it's a little line, but its significance is tremendous. How did you come up with the title or the theme of your first book? So the theme, so Live Your Dash, the subtitle, Discovering the Eight Fs to Freedom, um, it really came from reflecting on my experience in the hospital. And I said, you know what? There's these eight different areas of my life that really pulled me through. These eight areas of my life are what got me through the most traumatic part of my life. And if it got me th through it, doesn't mean I got over it. I'm still going through it. But if it's helping me through this process of loss, then I know it can help other people. And so I just started writing topics and ideas that were meaningful to me during that time. And I just noticed they all start with the letter F. And so they, since they started with the letter F, each chapter starts with the letter F in different areas such as family, friends, forgiveness, finances, all different areas of life that um, were helping me and my family adjust and, and to cope and to get the relief that we needed. And so the dash is, you know, I literally thought of my daughter because, you know, the time she was born to the time she died, it was 42 days. So her dash started on January 6th and the conclusion of her life on earth was February 16th. But it wasn't about the length of that dash. You know, I think people, they want to think they got to live to 100 or 80 or 90 or 70, whatever the case may be. No matter how short or long your time is here on earth is that you have an assignment and it is up to us to make that time with our dash meaningful and impactful to those around us and that's what she did for me and so i wanted to do that for other people by writing this book i wanted to add that to my legacy you know to become an author and so to help other people 
What do you mean by assignment? Well, every single human being on earth was put here for a reason. Um, there's a purpose because we all have a gift. We all have a calling. We all have a mission to complete. Some people never learn what it is. Some people do. Some people learn it earlier in life. Some people learn it later. Um, but that calling and that mission and that assignment is what you're supposed to do with the life you've been given. And for me, I just truly believe that, first of all, we're called to love people. And one of the best ways you can love people is to share your gift with people because a gift is no good if it's kept to yourself. A gift must be shared. That's what brings joy to the world. So we all have an assignment here to do something to make an impact on someone, whether that's one person or one million. We, hear, we are here for an assignment. And that assignment is to love people and to show them something, to teach them something of value. Do you believe love is the meaning of life? Without it, I don't think there is a meaningful life at all. So absolutely, love is, love is the most important thing. Can you go a little bit more into that? Because people always say whoever finds out the real meaning of life will be a millionaire. Um, but there have been movies like Collateral Damage that put it in our face and say love is the meaning of life. And I wanted to pick your brain a little bit more. Why do you think love is the meaning of life? I'll use, I'll use the success of my second book. I'll just use as it as an example. So, you know, it's my dream, my goal in life, like to become a best-selling author. And with my second book, I did just that. I accomplished that. And I had a lot of congratulations. A lot of people who told me they were proud of me. You know, and I was proud of myself. A huge accomplishment. And I'm thankful for that. But what I learned is that if I do all that, I have every goal ever that I ever set and it gets all achieved. And if I come home and I don't have a healthy relationship with my wife, or I'm not there for my children, and I'm expressing that love to them, then all this stuff means nothing. Because there have been moments where I've reached a certain level of success and it felt good. But if I don't have the love and support of those closest to me, it is truly empty. So there's no amount of success that can give you fulfillment without love. And so for me, love has got to be the most important thing because that's what makes any success worth achieving. Because what, is, what good is success without love? To me, it's failure. I wouldn't be remiss if I wouldn't touch on its opposite. Its opposite is hate. But the way I see hate, and I would like you to reflect on this, is that darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. And I see hate in the same way. Hate is not a real thing. It's the absence of love in someone's heart. Do you believe that's true? That's a great way to put it. Because I truly believe that people who are loved the right way can't hate. They can't do it. 
I think it's when someone hasn't been loved properly. That love is absent. That's what creates the darkness that you're talking about. And maybe someone's meaning of life is to give love to people that need it. Would you say that's, would you say that's true? I think that's the ultimate test of love. It's very easy to love people who believe like you, who vote like you, and look like you. Um, but there's really no challenge in that. There's no growth in that, in my opinion. Um, I truly believe talking to people who have all completely different life experiences, beliefs, and views um, are actually truly testing the amount of love that a person has. It's just so easy to love people who love you back. That's e Anybody can do that. It takes no effort or no skill at all to do. Um, but to love people who truly believe and live the opposite way that you do is really the test of the love that's in your heart. And it comes back to what am I, one of the most interesting quotes from Jesus Christ is pray for your enemies. And that quote has been with me my entire life. It is the one of the most challenging things I can do. And after 9-11, I mean, I tried it and it felt empty, but I literally said, you know, dear Lord, I'm going to pray for Osama bin Laden. And there was no emotion behind it. There was no sincerity and no love when I said the words and honest, if, if I'm completely honest with myself, I didn't mean it. I didn't want to pray for him. How can someone find love to give to, quote unquote, their enemies? I mean, thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. So I, that is also one thing that I have read that, first of all, used to make me mad. Because I'm like, first of all, there's no way I'm doing that, right? There's just, I'm not doing it. I'd, I'd rather... I'd rather say some other things about that person than to pray for him. You know what I mean? So like, that's just how I felt until there came a point in my life where, you know, I had a few of those enemies where I had maybe that absence of light in my heart for them. There was darkness in my heart for, there's a few people in my life at that time. Where I was like, you know what? I have no love for them at all. And what I realized is that I believe what Jesus is saying when he says pray for your enemies is that it's not that they're not going to be your enemies no more. What happens is one, because when you actually sincerely pray for any human being, no matter who it is, they literally can no longer be your enemy because now your heart is turning towards them. So you will look at that same person, not as your enemy anymore. You will look at them through the eyes of God. You will look at them with love if you sincerely pray the best for them. And obviously very difficult to do, um, but it definitely has to be sincere. And it may take weeks, months, or years, but continuously praying um, for that enemy. And you will soon realize they're not your enemy anymore because you're praying for them. You cannot pray for your enemy technically because if you continuously to pray for them, you will see the shift. They will no longer be your enemy. I like that you said it would take days, weeks, or even years to do because it is something to overcome. 
It is something to use the love that you have to pray for someone that may cause harm to other people or to you yourself. And I want to thank you for, for sharing that advice with me and the listeners. Absolutely. I want to touch on the eight areas that started with the letter F and maybe we can go into it a little bit more. Do you have an order that you listed your, the areas in? Yeah. So, I mean, I put the first one as focus. Focus. Number one, focus. Yeah. So for me, like focus is what drives most things because that's where your thoughts are. And what you think about is what you become. What you think about is what you do. What you think about reflects your attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs. So what you think about all day long is reflecting who you are as a person. So I had to decide what I wanted to think about. I had to decide what I'm going to focus on and, you know, where energy goes, the person follows. So choosing your thoughts wisely can literally be life-changing. And we all have negative thoughts that creep in, but you can decide which thoughts you take captive and hold in, hold into your mind. Do you believe in the law of attraction? Yeah. So I believe that things that you think about are more likely to become a reality in your life because it's driving your emotions, your energy, your attitudes, what you do. I think your thoughts just, your thoughts are one of the most powerful things that you can have. And so whatever that topic is, whether good or bad, what you think about is what you're going to go find. Well, you get what you look for in life. You look for bad, you will find bad. You look for good, you will find good. And you will start to see that more and more around you, no matter what it is you think about. Number one is focus. What's number two? Number two is fitness. So for me, working out is a very important. Um, and I And I think that when you don't work out, this is just for me, you know, I, I struggle. So if I'm taking weeks off at a time, I mean, I'm not the same person. So for me, having that fitness, having that exercise is so important, not only to my health, but my mood, my behaviors, um, how I interact with people. You know, people can notice the difference when I have not worked out in a while. Um, and it's not just fitness of the body, it's fitness of the mind, exercising your brain through learning new skills, reading, going to conferences, learning a valuable skill. So the mind and the body being exercised together to get maximum health. During a few periods of my life, I was a couch potato and fitness was here and there. But I said to myself one day, let me take a walk. Just let me take a walk. And for the first few minutes, you know, a walk is probably the most mundane, easy, fit, physical activities you can do. And for the first minute or two, I was astounded how calm it is to take a walk. You're breathing in oxygen. You're looking at trees. You're looking at the sky. And your body's moving. You, I literally felt the blood circulating throughout my body. Would you give that advice to someone who happens to be a couch potato? Hey, man, just take a walk outside and start with that. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to go to a gym. You don't have to get a membership. You don't have to buy equipment. 
could literally start with a walk around the block. Could literally start with one push up, one sit up, anything. But anything is better than nothing when it comes to working out. So I would say just start. It doesn't, you don't need to have a personal trainer. You don't need to have any of that stuff to start. It's just having the will and discipline to want better for yourself. Now you need to move forward from that, right? You just can't do one push up every day, right? You want to push yourself. You want to move forward, get to two push ups. Yeah. Well, the hope is that any human being who does one push up is going to say, okay, I want more. They're not going to give up once they do that one. But the hardest one is the first one. If you can do the first one, then the second feels more natural and comfortable because you're already putting your body into a position to do the thing that you, you're trying to do. It's, it's much, so if you're sitting on a couch, going from the couch to do one push-up is much harder than doing the second, third, fourth, and fifth push-up because you had to make the effort to do the first one. And once you make the effort to do the first one, then it's this momentum is getting built. But, you know, I would argue that getting off your couch and doing one push-up is easier than sitting down to write the first chapter of your book. So can, <laughs> so can you go a little bit more into that and talk about the effort it takes to do something easy versus doing something challenging? Right. So you're absolutely right. Like writing a chapter of a book, that's, that's some mental determination. You know what I mean? I think everybody will see the pictures and, oh, wow, you have a book. That's really cool. I always wanted to become an author. And I feel like most people have some type of aspiration that's similar to that. Not everybody wants to be one, but a lot of people do. But they don't realize the effort it takes to sit at the table by yourself, away from the world, and just think and just write or whatever environment you put yourself in. But it's just taking that consistent time to do that one thing over and over and over again. It's not easy. It just takes time to develop that. I'm going to give you my opinion and then I want your feedback. So for me, to write one chapter or your, the first chapter of a book in physical form would be to run a mile without stopping. Would you agree? Or if not, what physical activity do you compare to writing the first chapter of a book? <laughs> I would compare writing the first chapter of a book to running um, because running is my least favorite exercise. <laughs> um, and writing can feel that way at the beginning. It can because you just don't know if this makes sense or what am I even saying? Or is anyone even going to want to read this? So it's like this, this mental fatigue instead of a physical fatigue. It's a mental fatigue of just like, ah, I don't know if I can write one more sentence or the person who's running a mile. I don't know if I can run one more tenth of this mile. I just want to stop. This is too much. I'm exhausted. So I think they're similar in that way that they both just, they, they take a lot out of you. All the effort and energy that gets put into running that mile and writing that chapter all the exhaustion that goes into that and they're all worth the reward. All right. So number two was fitness. What's number three? Finance. So, you know, during that time of life that we were in, we, we had a lot of financial struggles. We, we weren't working. 
really at all because we were in the hospital 24 seven. But graciously, we had so many people who financially gave and supported us and gave us donations, cooked us meals, took care of our kids. I mean, these people did everything to help us and support us. You know what I mean? And I truly believe where, where your money goes is where your heart goes. And so I truly believe that, you know, money is, is a tool. It is a magnifier of the person who holds it. Some people say it's evil. It's not evil and it's not good either. It is literally just takes on the character of the person who possesses it. And so I believe money is, is meant to be used for good. And I think one of those things is to generously give to other people in need. And so finances is a huge part of everyone's life, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what, what class person is in, finances is going to influence your life. And I think people need to learn how to manage that money before the money manages them. Because money is a, although it can be an amazing tool to use, it can also be disastrous if it's, if it's mismanaged. There's a quote that I like repeating when I'm speaking, and it says, do you run the day or does the day run you? And you just use that quote for money. Are you managing money or is money managing you? Can you go a little bit into that? And what advice would you give to people who may feel that money is managing them instead of the other way around? Yeah, I mean... I was a person that had money managed my life for many years and I did things for money all the time. I mean, it just be kind of, it's a way of life for me for so long. And I can specifically remember a time when I was in Iraq and at that point in my life, it was the most money I ever had. I had so much money. I didn't even know what to do with it. And it was literally the most miserable I'd ever been in my entire life. Complete misery. And I had a lot of money. I literally didn't even know what to do with it all. I didn't. That's how much I had. And I was thinking to myself, and I looked at my statement, I said, man, I'm broke. That's the brokest I've ever been because it makes, it make, it's no value to have just riches in your pocket, but you have poverty in your heart. And that's where I was at. You know what I mean? It's good to have, you want to have both. Both. Not sacrificing one for the other. And that's what I did. I was too caught up in, in going to get this money that I sacrificed my relationship for it. And that was, for me, that was money managing my life. And you can actually have, you can have an abundance of money and not have to sacrifice your relationship for people. That was a hard lesson I had to learn because you can have healthy relationships and have an abundance of money. Um, that would be a healthy balance between the two. And for the person who feels like, well, I got bills to pay. And we all got bills to pay, right? We, we got a lot of bills to pay. There's a lot of expenses. I would say don't ever pursue the money to replace your peace. And that's exactly what I did. I thought money was going to give me peace. And it just left me broken because it became the number one thing. Nothing else mattered, not even my own peace. Because if I had money, that was just going to be the answer to all of life's problems. And it actually just created more. So for those of us, me included, that daydream of winning the lottery, daydream of having that 10-bedroom mansion that we see on TV, to go on these illustrious traveling vacations, 
is there something wrong with daydreaming about about being rich? I don't think so. Um, I know a lot of people in my circle would say that there is, but um, I don't see anything wrong with it at all. I think that we should strive to have the greatest. I see nothing wrong with that at all. Have a nice house, have a nice car, go on a vacation, but don't don't ever for a second believe that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment in your life. It's fun. It can bring you memories, but don't let that be the only thing that you pursue. That's a good lesson to take away. Thank you. So number three was finance. What's number four? Uh, The next one is one that children do very well. Um, Adults are terrible at it because adults stop doing it. Pry around in their 20s, I would say. And that's fun. And the reason why is because they have these things called responsibilities and bills and a job and all these things to go to that fun goes out the window. Some people believe that if you're having fun, that you can't be successful. You can't be a leader. People can look down on you. And I think that anything that you do, if you're not having fun at it at all, like ever, it's going to take the joy right out of your life and you're going to burn yourself out. So I think it's important to, to love what you do. Obviously, there's going to be days where it's not enjoyable. I get it. It's part of life. Sometimes days are going to suck, but you still got to find moments to have fun. Fun is so important. Fun is, has been life-changing for me. Finding time with my family and friends to just enjoy life has always helped me stay grounded. It's always helped me to keep going forward because during the stressful moments of life, just having a laugh can change an entire day. But Jesse, fun is for vacations. So I work nine to five being miserable so that I can have fun later. Isn't that how life is supposed to be? That's what we're taught, you know, work, work until you're about 67 years old and have the last eight or nine years to enjoy life. I'm not waiting that long. Um, I'm going to try to enjoy my life every day that I can now. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work in a place that I love going to work every day. Um, I know that's a rare thing to have, and I'm just so thankful for it. I love what I do for work. And sometimes people will just settle. They will settle for the job that they hate because it's comfortable and easy to them. Instead of taking the risk and believing in themselves to go try something they're truly designed to do. So they would rather be miserable because it's comfortable. There's a motivational YouTube video out there that the guy starts speaking and he puts... I think like 10,000 M&Ms or Skittles on the floor. And he starts taking away, he starts taking away the candy and explains why he's doing it. So sleep, right? That's a third of your life. If you sleep for eight hours out of the 24 hours in a day, that's a third of your life you're spending sleeping. So he takes one third of the candy away from the pile. Then he starts taking away work. Then he starts taking away showering, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, and he keeps taking and taking and taking. And then finally, towards the end of the video, he gathers all the candies and says, this is the time. This is the time that you have to go on vacation, to have fun, and to do everything that you wanted to do. Depending on how old you are right now, you would need to take some more candies away And then that's how much you really have left. 
So spend that time preciously. And I think it's just, it's just astounding because I go back to that video and you are absolutely right. We have to have fun. And even if that means me taking my kids to the playground and me climbing into the playground and being the only adult, 200 pounds going down the slide, I don't care. I don't care what the other parents think of me because I'm going to have fun. Exactly. Number four, fun. Number five, what, what would number five be? Friends. Um, your friends truly influence the direction of your life. If you want to know where your life is, how to look at your five friends that you spend the most time with. They're literally going to be hinting at your future. So you must choose them wisely. And so for me, I set the standard. I want to become friends with the type of men that I want my daughters to marry because they're going to see what a man is supposed to do or how a man is supposed to act. And so I need to be careful about the men that I let around into my family. So I've been very, you know, strategic in, in how I spend my time, you know. So I think our time with our friends are going to influence every aspect of our lives. And for people with, for people who are married, would you count your spouse as one of those friends? Me, absolutely. So, you know, my spouse, she's my best friend. So she influences me more than any other human being on planet earth. So who you marry, which we can just shift right into family, who you marry is also going to have probably the biggest impact on your life. The person you're deciding to spend the rest of your life with. So a family is, is huge. And number six, I'm assuming is family. Yeah. Yep. And the other side of that, the family is that we all have a family of origin and we all must decide when we have our own families, what am I going to leave behind for my childhood and what am I going to bring forward? And if we're not intentional about that, we can bring the bad things from our childhood into our adulthood, into our marriages and into how we raise our children. So family, we must decide what parts of the family of origin are we leaving behind? What positive things are we bringing with us and what's number seven number seven is forgiveness without it no person can truly enjoy life because that bitterness will completely poison any type of happiness anybody tries to have so not having forgiveness is literally choosing to walk around offended hurt wounded and be a victim for the rest of your life and you can't ever change the world walking around being a victim let's go a little bit more into forgiveness how how does one even begin to seek forgiveness i think it's a couple of things i think it's first of all admitting that we've done something to hurt someone so it's being humble enough to accept the fact that we have done something wrong. Therefore, we should extend that same grace to somebody else. Because what I've noticed and things that I've done wrong, I always have an excuse as to why I've done something wrong to somebody. Always. I can always come up with a reason. I can rationalize any time I've ever hurt somebody. There's always a reason why I do it. But I never give that same grace to somebody else who's done it to me. And so what I've learned is that we tend to become a lawyer for when we have hurt somebody. 
we're a lawyer. We 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 can talk away. We can rationalize. We can twist and bend the truth. We can do all find a loophole as to why we did it. But we become a judge when someone else does it to us. So I think it's just understanding that we are all flawed individuals. We have all fallen short, and we've all made a mistake. And so the next person is also just like us, and we're no better than them. It's just that we think that their offense was worse than ours because it's done to us. But we've been just as rude or disrespectful or, or offensive to them. So forgiveness is really a gift. I mean, it's something that needs to be given. That's why the word give is in there, forgive. Seeking forgiveness, you said step one is to admit that you've done something to hurt another person by being disrespectful or something like that. Once you admit that to yourself, oh, wow, I made a mistake. I really hurt them. I didn't really mean to. What would be the next step? I think when, well, it's changed behavior. I mean, that's a, you know, people say the, the best apology is change behavior. So if I yell and scream at somebody's face and, I, and then I say to myself, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I first want to forgive myself. Like, you know what, Jesse, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I overreacted. I was caught up in my emotions. You know, I also ask that forgiveness from God. God, I'm sorry. You know, I blew it again because we're all human beings and we do mess up. Have that conversation with God. Have that conversation with yourself. Have that conversation, if possible, because it's not always possible. Have that conversation with the person because sometimes we don't get to see that person again. So we're not going to be able to go to that person. But if you're able, have that conversation with that person and, and apologize and ask them for forgiveness and not do it again. Because you're, So if I ask someone to forgive me and they forgive me and then I come back the next day and I scream in their face again, I'm destroying the forgiveness process. So forgiveness, you need to truly change your behaviors. How does one forgive themselves? One of the hardest things to do. It's probably one of my biggest struggles. Um, I think it's really, it's harder to forgive yourself without God. Because when you understand the forgiveness of God, I truly believe that gives you the ability to have more grace with being a human being. And so I think forgiving myself is, it's literally a conversation I, I have had to have many times and said, you know what, Jesse, I messed up. I'm going to do better next time. And when I see those people, when I'm in those situations, I try to set myself free by saying, God, please help me. I think it's just forgiving yourself is, man, it's, it's tough because we know ourselves better than anybody else. So we may have a bad thought bad idea say some foul words a bad action and so helping me to forgive myself i need to be reminded of all the times i've been forgiven all the things that i've done and times that people have forgiven me for the bad things that i've done and i know if i can forgive other people it would be very selfish of me to never forgive myself you did something very interesting when you gave examples, you addressed yourself by your first name. You said, Jesse, blah, 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 blah. Where did you pick up that exercise? You know, I don't know if I can put an exact place, um, but I think it's just talking with other successful leaders 
Um, it's, it's having that conversation with yourself. People might think it's weird, but I, I mean, I think it's healthy. I think it's just because when you speak it out loud, it becomes more real. And just talking to myself, hey, Jesse, you know what? And it's, it's also saying the good things. Jesse, you did good back there. Good job. And I don't think that's arrogant. I just think it's, it's having an understanding of the things that you do well and the things you mess up on and being honest about both. It's not arrogant. It actually pr- is proven scientifically that talking to yourself by name helps you achieve your goals. You handle stress better when you talk to yourself by name. And so I'm very happy to see and to, to see that that advice is being provided to others because it is one of the best things that you can do for the times that you are stressed out or times that you want to forgive yourself, which is a form of stress. You know, it's funny. You look at the three people that you seek forgiveness from when you do something bad or something that you didn't like. If you forgive yourself, you can actually accept it. If you ask forgiveness from another person, they can accept it. But when you ask forgiveness from, from God, there's, let's be real, there's no way you're going to get a clear answer. So how would you know that God accepts your forgiveness? That's a good question. I think it's reading his word is a, is a huge reminder uh, throughout the Bible. It talks about forgiveness and th- those verses aren't just meant for those people in that one time period. Those verses are also meant for me and the forgiveness that was displayed throughout the word is also directed towards me. So it's reading those reminders that it is the goodness of God, not the goodness of Jesse. And I need to remind myself of that, that I'm going to mess up. I am only human. And I'm doing my best. And God will forgive. But I need to sincerely seek that forgiveness and turn from my ways. And I truly believe that God will help people who seek that sincerely from him. This next question is tricky, but let's say someone actively asks for forgiveness from God, but they don't feel, quote unquote, that he has forgiven them. Any advice for anyone that is feeling this or has felt this before? I would say that would be more of a trust issue. Um, because if you're truly seeking forgiveness from God and you don't believe that God truly forgives you, what you're also saying is you truly don't trust God, which is a whole nother issue. So it's not just a forgiveness problem. It's also a trust problem. And what I've realized is that people who struggle with forgiveness like myself, because I've struggled with it for years, a forgiveness problem is really a byproduct of a love problem. The more forgiving a person can be, typically the more loving they can be. And for people who are more unforgiving, like I had spent many years being, um, I was very unloving. So I think it's trusting and also knowing that God is love. And if you know that someone truly loves you more than anything, you will know that they will forgive you, even when it's hard and you've messed up for the millionth time. A true love will still forgive.
So if you're attaching forgiveness to love, would you say that forgiveness is an important process in the meaning of life? Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. Because in the closest of relationships, people are going to get hurt intentionally or unintentionally. People are going to hurt each other. And part of loving is forgiving. Part of forgiving is loving. The two cannot be separated. Thank you for that, Jesse. And number eight. Number eight is faith. I mean, that's what got me through is that trying to see what I could not see with my own eyes, knowing that there is a better hope in the future. And, you know, everybody has faith in something. Even an atheist has faith. Everybody has faith, whether it's faith in the economy, a faith in a leader faith in their paycheck that they're going to get paid from working, faith that when they go to start their car, the car is going to turn on. Everybody has some form of it. Um, but it's whatever you place your faith in. And so whatever you put your faith in, I think that you should be all in and committed to whatever it is that you put your faith in. And hopefully it's a thing that will last for not just this life, but after life. And that goes into your second book. Your second book is titled Losing Faith and Finding Hope. So faith is the name of your daughter. And as the title suggests, and like we've talked about earlier in the podcast, you, you lost her. And then the second part is finding hope. So the inspiration was the loss of your daughter. And... So can you tell us a little bit how you were able to find hope in your life? Yeah, so I think hope comes from hurting. I don't think people can have hope unless they've been hurt in some way. It doesn't have to be tragic all the time. But the reason why we have hope, it's because it's the desire of a brighter future. Because there is something or someone missing. It could be something small. It could be something big. But the reason why we hope for something or for someone or for a situation is because it's lacking right now. And so my hope is in my healing that I can use the pain that I went through to help somebody else heal. The hope is her healing from heaven. The hope is that I will see her again. The hope is that we all share our pain in a way that brings healing to the world. So I was able to find that hope and I'm still finding hope through spreading this message of what we experience in the hospital. In The Matrix Reloaded, there's a scene where the main character, Neo, goes into a room and talks to the architect of The Matrix. It's an artificial intelligence program that created the entire Matrix where humans live in in order to grab their energy as humans. And the architect says to the main character, Neo, hope. It is the source of your greatest strength and your greatest weakness. Can you react to that quote? Is hope our greatest strength and our greatest weakness? So I've never heard that quote, but that is a powerful one. And I will say that it's definitely one of the most powerful things in our life. And it can be the most devastating when the thing that we hope for does not happen. So I do like that quote. Um, so what do you do when you hope for something 
or someone or situation and it never happens, where does your hope go? But I think that's the challenge that we all face. Where does the hope go when the thing that you hope to happen never happened? And I think that goes back to the previous topic of faith. Sometimes God has something else planned. Even if that's not the thing that we want, it might be the thing that we need. But yes, hope can be one of the greatest expectations and also the greatest tragedies that we go through in our life. There's another quote about hope that I wanted to get your feedback on. And it's from the movie X-Men. And it goes like this. It's not their pain you are afraid of. It's yours. And as frightening as it can be, that pain will make you stronger. If you allow yourself to feel it, embrace it, it will make you more powerful than you ever imagined. It is the greatest gift we have to bear their pain without breaking. And it comes from the most human part of us, hope. We need you to hope again. How does that quote make you feel? Wow. That was powerful. I'd say it's completely accurate. I mean, hope truly is a revelation of pain turning into healing. And I think that once people embrace that pain, it may not it may be difficult to do. It's never fun. But I truly believe, I, I compare it to working out. A person who goes to work out, goes to the gym, works out really hard, and they get sore. They get really, really sore from the pressure that was just put on their body. But eventually, if, they te- if they're able to endure through the pain, they will, able, they will also be able to see the growth, the strength will develop. So I think everybody wants to be strong, but nobody wants to train to get there. And the traumas and the crises of life are the exact things that we need to become the person that we were meant to be all along. Any other takeaways from your second book? Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to wrap it up with by saying that, you know, I'm not the only person who suffered a loss. You know, 2020 was a year full of losses, whether that was loss of freedom, loss of a job, a relationship, money, health. Everybody lost something last year. And what I want people to realize with this book is that it's the painful situations of life that are the most powerful. And I know that sounds maybe sad or depressing, but it is those challenges that are what building each person up if we allow it. So, you know, my, my story is painful, but it's also full of hope. It's also helping. And so whoever is listening, know that you too also have a story. It doesn't necessarily have to be written in a book or spoken on a stage but you have something that you've gone through that needs to be shared in a way to help other people heal and to embrace that pain um, because it 
burst hope. And so losing faith, finding hope is, is about the painful event that I've gone through and how I've turned that painful situation and used it as a guide to encourage and spread light to other people. And everybody else can do the same. Jesse, this will be my last question for you. How can one find their purpose? I think people find their purpose by honestly assessing themselves. First of all, it's asking about what you're good at. So start there. What are you good at? That's going to point you in the direction. The next thing is, what do you enjoy doing? Because there's some things that I enjoy doing that I'm not really good at. Um, so those two need to intersect. You can enjoy it, you can be good at it, and does it help other people? So those are the first three. What are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? Does this help other people? And also, how can I get paid for doing this? Some people think that last part is selfish, but I don't think so. I think if you have a gift and a passion and a purpose, I think that you should be compensated for your gifts. So I think asking those four questions won't necessarily give you the exact answer, but I promise honestly answering those four questions will definitely point you in the direction of your purpose. And Michael Jr., who's a comedian and someone who helps people find their purpose through religion and God, says that it's not important what you do, it's important why you do it. And if you know your why, then your purpose becomes very clear. And I truly believe that. Jesse, how can people find you and your services? So people can find me on Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram, Jesse Cruz Speaks. Twitter, Jesse Cruz Speaks. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on the new social media app, Clubhouse. Jesse Cruz Speaks is my handle. For people who want to get online, my website is jessecruzspeaks.com. And for... Um, people who want to buy the book, it's on amazon.com. And for people who also want a personalized copy of the book, they can connect with me directly, DM me. So those are all the best ways to get hold of me. All right. Thank Jesse. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Any, any final words for our listeners? Don't give up. Somebody, somebody in this world is counting on you to share your story. So don't quit. Jesse, I want to thank you for being on my podcast. I want to thank you for sharing your story. And I want to thank you for the best advice that you have given to my listeners. Thank you for having me. This episode is called Losing Faith, Finding Hope with Jesse Cruz. That will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Thank you for listening. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye.